This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good afternoon. My name is Richard Kai, and I'm the president of the Institute of the Americas, which is co-located on the UC, um, UCSD campus here in San Diego. On behalf of the Institute, it gives me great pleasure to welcome all of you to the special presentation of Governor Bill Richardson, a friend and my former bra- boss when he served as a member of Congress as well as Secretary of Energy under Bill Clinton. This afternoon, Governor Richardson will share his thoughts on renewing U.S. hemispheric engagement in a changing world. Before we begin, I'd like to thank our sponsor of this webinar series, the San Diego civic leader and philanthropist Malin Burnham and the Burnham Foundation. I would also like to thank University of California Television for partnering with the Institute on our Hemisphere in Transition webinar series. At this time, I would like to introduce Nelson Cunningham, a board member of the Institute of the Americas, who is also president and co-founder of the Washington, D.C.-based global strategy firm McClarty & Associates. Prior to co-founding McClarty & Associates, Nelson served as the White House Special Advisor to President Clinton on Western Hemispheric Affairs. At this time, um, I'd like to bring Nelson on so he can introduce the governor. Take it away, Nelson. Thank you so much, Richard. Um, I am proud to have been a board member of the Institute of the Americas for about the last 15 years and have been deeply engaged with the Institute and traveling down to the the beautiful campus in La Jolla uh, two or three times a year. I, I, too, want to thank Malin Burnham, who's been a fellow board member of mine at the Institute of the Americas for the past 15 years. He's a great benefactor. He's a great man in the uh, San Diego region, and he's a great friend of the Institute. Um, I come to this uh, introduction of Bill Richardson from the fortunate position of having worked with him for two years. Um, I'll get to that in a minute, but he was born... Uh, really, to talk about U.S. engagement in Latin America. His father was an American businessman in Mexico. Uh, His mother was a Mexican. They married. Uh, He was born in Pasadena and immediately went back to Mexico City, was raised in the beautiful Mexican suburb of Coyoacan, which if you ever travel to Mexico, I recommend you get down there. It's a lovely traditional area just outside Mexico City and a lovely place to have been raised. Bill Richardson then uh, returned to the United States for school, uh, including attending Tufts University and the Fletcher Institute Institute of uh, Law and Foreign Policy. Uh, He served as a staff member in Congress and then served as a member of Congress from New Mexico for 15 years. Uh, President Clinton, for whom I saw, also had the privilege of working had the good sense to name him as uh, his ambassador to the United Nations, as his secretary of energy. And, uh, and that's when governor, the governor and I got to work together because uh, for two years after he left the Clinton administration and before he became governor of New Mexico, Bill Richardson was a colleague of mine at what was then known as Kissinger McClarty Associates. Uh, the firm that I still head today, known as McClarty Associates. Those were dynamic times for us. We were focusing heavily on helping American companies in Latin America. And uh, then Secretary Richardson was a great 
assistant assist to us because of his marvelous standing throughout the region. He then returned to New Mexico, ran for governor, spent two terms as governor of New Mexico, and has been in and out of New Mexico uh, and its politics ever since. Uh, Bill Richardson travels broadly, knows not just Latin America, but the world deeply. Uh, he has uh, a side hustle of uh, rescuing hostages from around the world, and maybe we'll hear a little bit about that from him today. Uh, it's with great pleasure that I introduce my old colleague, um, the former governor of New Mexico, uh, Bill Richardson. Well, uh, thank you, Nelson. What a wonderful uh, and kind introduction. I might say that uh, there's nobody that knows more about Latin America than Nelson Cunningham. And uh, I, I stand very strongly behind that. Richard Kai, who uh, worked for me at the Energy Department and in the Congress, uh, thank you again. Uh, Richard uh, was a very influential player in the passage of NAFTA as a staff member, many times outdoing what I was doing. And now with the Institute, uh, great reputation, the Institute. Uh, and, and so I'm very pleased to to be with you. I'm going to start out by saying there's 10 challenges that the new administration, President Biden's administration has with Latin America. Then I'll go deeply into a little bit of a deep dive on each. Let me start out by saying that uh, I'm, I'm biased. Uh, I like uh, President Biden. He's on fire. I watched him last night. He surprises everybody with new transformational initiatives. And I think that's what might happen. And I'm an optimist on Latin America. Let me start with the 10 challenges. The first one, uh, every administration comes in Republican or Democrat and says, we're gonna pay more attention to Latin America. And then it doesn't happen. Nelson, all of you watching know that's the case. But this time, I think the answer is gonna be yes, more attention mainly because of the president's personal travels and commitment and knowledge of the region, especially Central America. So that's uh, answer number one. Number two is going to be, will we regain the trust in the region after the America First policies, after maximum pressure, sanctions, threats, uh, uh, gunboat diplomacy, especially towards Mexico, Cuba, and Venezuela? I think the answer is gonna be yes, because of our emphasis on alliances, on multilateralism, on uh, the Paris Agreement, on the more emphasis on the IDB, on CEPAL, on CAF, on AID. Um, issue number three, uh, trade. Will we be able to overcome what I think was a mistake in pulling out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership? Will we have some new trade agreements? Uh, will the new NAFTA, uh, TMEC, be observed? Uh, will we also stop the policy of uh, tariffs and trade threats and sanctions? I think the answer is yes, because President Biden is basically a, a free trader and we will work well 
especially in this new area of engagement, which is renewable energy and climate change. Uh, I think you will see, I hope, a free trade agreement on renewable energy in the hemisphere. Number four, will migration, immigration, uh, pressures on the border, uh, unaccompanied children, which is right now an area of great contention in the United States, on the southern border, uh, be contained? The answer is it won't be contained, but it'll be made better. This is a long range issue. And we'll get into this, I'm sure, in the Q's and A's. But I think the approach of uh, dealing with it at the root level with uh, packages of incentives and assistance to, to Mexico, to Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, uh, I think it's going to be positive. And finding ways to deal with these migrant children before they get to the border, before they get to the Mexican border, expand our ability to process many of these unfortunate cases. Uh, number five, the shift towards populism in the hemisphere. Populism on the right and the left. Uh, what's happening in Peru and Bolivia? What's happening in Nicaragua and Ecuador? Countries that are changing rapidly. Populism, uh, Brazil, uh, obviously Mexico. Uh, I think that the new policy where the emphasis is democratization, human rights, uh, issues relating to engagement with the private sector, uh, instead of uh, an economic populism that I don't think has worked, not just in our country, but in the hemisphere. Number six, can we tackle the growing inequality and access to the vaccine in Latin America? Obviously, China is making huge advances in vaccine diplomacy. But this is uh, gonna be an ongoing problem, especially in a hemisphere where there are 28 million cases of COVID, 86,000 reported deaths. And I think it's gonna take the World Health Organization, uh, the international development agencies, the private sector technology innovation, the Exim Bank, I think there has to be a shift to deal with this issue of COVID which is tearing the whole world apart. Issue number seven, uh, is China gonna take over as the preeminent player in Latin America with its investments, with vaccine diplomacy? Uh, the answer I believe is no, but it's gonna take massive engagement again by the United States and find ways in the hemisphere to work with China. Now, a lot of people may not agree with me, but I think there's great potential to work with China on the issue of climate change. All right, China has all these solar roofs that uh, price-wise are going down, technology are good. Maybe U.S. can participate jointly in financing projects and renewable energy, clean technology projects in the hemisphere. Issue number eight, geopolitical, uh, Venezuela and Cuba. Uh, you can't diminish the issue of Florida politics being part of this. Uh, what's going to happen with Cuba? I think we need to re-engage with Cuba, but it's not going to happen right away. I think you'll see a gradual, a gradual effort to come uh, and have closer relations in the areas of remittances, in the area of cruise travel, in the area of personal travel, like human rights travel, Cuban-Americans back and forth, 
uh, Florida, New Jersey, other states. Uh, Venezuela, that's, I'm currently engaged in trying to get the Citgo 6 out of Venezuela. I haven't, had, haven't done too well there, but maybe there's a possibility that uh, Europe and the United States can work together, uh, the European Union, to, to bring elections and some kind of uh, democratization uh, to Venezuela. Uh, issue number nine, uh, the two biggest countries in the hemisphere, governed by populists on the right and the left, Mexico and Brazil. What's it gonna take to uh, have productive relationships with the two? I think it's gonna take President Biden having personal diplomacy, which he's very good at with these two leaders. Uh, this is gonna take a little time, but these are two huge countries with enormous potential, but also the possibility of friction with the United States unless it's dealt with accurately and positively. Number 10, again, uh, the new infrastructure bill and its incentives on climate change, uh, renewable energy, private sector engagement. Can we use that and the COVID issue and economic issues to uh, superimpose under, over political differences that we have in the region? Let me get into a little deeper dive in the, into each of these issues. First, the socioeconomic impacts of COVID. Over the past year, we've all experienced the economic and social impacts of the pandemic uh, in this country and around the world. Still, of the impact has been quite uneven across our Western hemisphere. While here in the United States, we're on the road to recovery as a number of vaccines, uh, the Americans that are fully vaccinated grow. This is, however, not the case in Latin America, where I mentioned before, 28 million cases uh, of uh, infection, 86,000 reported deaths due to COVID. It's probably a lot more. And as a result, Latin America is facing its worst economic recession in its modern history, and recovery is not expected at least until at least 2023. The COVID-related impacts across Latin America, as we all know, as you all know, as experts, go beyond issues of health and the economy. In a way, COVID has been like a big receding ocean that has only exposed many problems across the region that have been left unattended for decades, including issues such as violence, interpersonal and organized crime, declining workforce productivity, income inequality, gender disparities, a large and growing informal economy, and climate change. Let me go into climate change and energy transition. On the issue of climate change, the imminent threat is obvious and we have to collectively act now to move the world towards carbon neutrality. I think at the last summit of the presidents, the climate summit, he committed the United States to reduce its CO2 emissions to between 50 to 52% by 2030 to 2005 levels to fulfill our nation's commitment under the Paris Agreement, which we would thankfully rejoin. I can tell you now there's a lot of exciting things on renewable energy happening in Latin America. In Colombia, they're doing with its state oil company, Ecopetrol, that is transitioning to electric, electrical transmission and renewables similar to what BP, Shell, and Total are beginning to do. Chile is something similar. 
They're pushing hard to become a leader in green hybrid production, leveraging wind and solar energy. Unfortunately, this, well, in my opinion, this is what Mexico and Pemex should also be doing. Instead, it seems that they're going in the other direction with the president, Lopez Obrador, doubling down on fossil fuels. As somebody like with Richard Kai and Nelson worked hard on the passage of NAFTA, I can tell you with the Biden administration's commitment to climate change and coupled by Canada's climate change leadership, there's going to be a lot of pressure on Latin American companies and Mexican companies to step up, step up their game given how inextricably linked our supply chains already are happening. A creep premise of NAFTA, which was reinforced by the USMCA, was that no country would skirt environmental regulations and become a pollution haven. So my hope is that the president of Mexico reverses his energy reforms and moves away uh, closer, closer to renewable energy. Unfortunately, I think Mexico, when it comes to foreign investment and renewable energy, is moving in the wrong direction. That could set the stage for some content, contentious battles between the United States and Canada as both countries, as all these countries press forward with their own CO2 emissions reduction goals. Uh, a lot of exciting things happening in Argentina, Chile, Bolivia, calling itself the lithium triangle. A lot of opportunities for American and foreign investment. Brazil installing 18.5 gigawatts of biofuels by 2026. That's positive. Argentina, a cradle of wind energy, 25% commitment and renewables for 2025. I mentioned Colombia and its wind energy. Peru, uh, ambitious goals, no carbon emissions by 2050. Uh, Costa Rica, always strong on renewable energy. So beyond the issue of reducing greenhouse gas emissions, there's a very real impact that climate change will have on human migration in the years to come. We've already seen these impacts of climate change on migration from Central America and Southern Mexico. Let me deal with the toughest issue, migration. Obviously the root causes of migration along Mexico's Southern border are multifaceted and not just driven by climate change. On the one hand, migrants are seeking a better life for their families and expanded economic opportunity. Migrants from Central America and Mexico are also fleeing their communities due to the growing levels of violence, insecurity, the absence of good governance. Uh, clearly, many of these migrants have legitimate asylum claims, and we should do what we can to welcome these would-be immigrants. I've said over the years what we need, though, and many of you have too, is a comprehensive immigration reform that is real and humane, that deals with the 11 million uh, undocumented workers that are already in the United States, that deals with the dreamers, that deals with asylum, so many issues. Uh, that said, the, the United States can't take all would-be migrants that wish to come to our country. So the United States needs to work proactively with countries in the region to catalyze economic opportunity and security in the Northern Triangle countries. In that way, more would be more would-be migrants can find meaningful economic opportunities in their countries. Here's where the president, 
I think is heading in the right direction. With President Lopez Obrador uh, committing $4 billion over the next four years to support economic prosperity in the Northern Triangle. But we can't forget what's happening in the Southern Triangle, in, in, in Panama, in, in Costa Rica, uh, in countries that, that are equally important. Do I think all of this is enough? Clearly it is. The challenges in Central America are going to take a generation to fix. But it's a start. It's a start. And I think President Biden knows the timing on immigration reform on many of these issues that may have to be not done comprehensively, but set up as individual pieces of legislation. Beyond any government assistance, what remains critical is to create an environment that fosters expanded economic private investment to promote skills and development, job creation, and long-term economic development. Uh, government and business leaders, especially in the Northern Triangle, uh, clearly need to address issues not just of insecurity, but also of weak state governance, poor rule of law, inhibiting private investment, and fueling the level of outbound migration from their country. Let me talk about Latin American populism. As we're seeing across Latin America, populism is on the rise in both on the right and the left in countries from Mexico and Brazil, as well as Venezuela and El Salvador, not to mention in Peru, where a runoff election is expected in early June, uh, an election this summer in, in Nicaragua, uh, an election just happened in Ecuador. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of uh, movement. Uh, while on the one hand, Latin America has more countries today with democratically elected leaders in its recent past, political dissatisfaction is still rampant. There's still a weak rules of law, corruption, issues uh, of cronyism that, that need to be dealt with. Uh, at the same time, poverty is on the rise across the region, which has been made worse by the pandemic. According to CEPAL, the number of people living in poverty is expected to rise from 186 million to 231 million, due in large part to the COVID-induced recession. That translates to 36% of the region's population. Some countries, like Mexico, the percentage of citizens living in poverty is close to 45%. In the extreme case of Venezuela, Today, 96% of residents live in poverty, and 70% now live in extreme poverty. This is the country that's one of the wealthiest, a major oil and energy power in Latin America. So the rise of populism is not understandably uh, the answer. In some instances, increased populism is given to regimes that uh, violate human rights, uh, but in these Latin American countries where populism is on the rise, liberal policies, neoliberal policies have been challenged. And as we're seeing in countries like Mexico, there's also some pushback against foreign investment. So what Latin America now needs more than ever is expanded investment to stimulate both the jobs and the economic opportunities to help countries in the region transition away from their traditional commodity-based sectors to the digitally-based jobs of the 21st century. Now, here's an opportunity for U.S. leadership. And I obviously, like all of you, a Latin Americanist, somebody devoted to the region, 
Uh, here, the United States finds itself at a historic crossroad where in the coming years, it has the opportunity to expand its hemispheric leadership to serve as a geopolitical counterweight to China's growing influence in Latin America, as well as Russia's too, especially in an area that Richard Kine and I were talking about earlier. And that's the area of nuclear uh, involvement, nuclear leadership. In my opinion, the United States too has a lot of catching up to do because since 9-11, we all know we've concentrated on Iraq and Afghanistan, the Middle East, uh, North Korea, as, as I have, Latin America became an afterthought. And now we're paying the price of that neglect. Uh, today, you have the Chinese state-owned companies controlling both ends of the Panama Canal. You've also got many Latin American countries increasing their dependence on Chinese debt financing. As China's influence in the region grows, it's beginning to use sharp power tactics to extract political commitments from countries in Latin America and the Caribbean on critical UN votes and official positions on the issues relating to Taiwan, Tibet, the recent Hong Kong issue, the concerns of the Uyghur intermittent camps. My real worry, however, is that if tensions between the United States and China continue to escalate, and now they're public, it's not secret. Look at the meeting in Alaska of our secretaries of state. China might try to leverage a strategic relationship in the region to build up its military presence in, in, in places like Venezuela that have been heavily dependent on debt from both China and Russia. I'm not bringing the rights uh, deep, deep, deep uh, concerns about the evils of China. I'm just saying we've got a strategic competitor and we've got to deal with it. So the United States needs to be vigilant. I don't want to be alarmist, but look at what China did in Sri Lanka's ports in 2015 due to debt repayment issues. So what can we do to counteract such a threat? Well, I think it begins by having the United States more intentional about its engagement throughout the hemisphere, similar to the pre 9-11 years. I think President Clinton was very committed to the region. Here we need to actively partner, use our alliances, our friends, our Western allies like Canada, like Japan, the United Kingdom, European Union. Uh, by the way, Jose Borrell is, is terrific as head of the political unit of the European Union, a real Latin American, a Hispanic. Uh, to help institute more forward-linking foreign policy that encourage Latin American countries to recommit themselves towards democratization, towards market-oriented economic reform, expanded regional integration, protection of journalist freedoms, basic human rights, as well as greater government transparency and accountability. Also critically, we'll be getting more bipartisan support in the United States Congress which we talk about, but doesn't happen much, especially lately. We've got to focus on soft power agendas tied to the core values that I've just described. So in the long run, I feel that it'll be a, these core values that we have that exist in Latin America, among the Latin American people, the educational institutions. I know that the Institute has a lot of joint educational programs in Latin America. Those are so important and need to be stronger. In the long run, I feel that it's gonna be these core values that 
will help promote greater economic prosperity for the people of Latin America. So in conclusion, and Nelson Cunningham will remember, President Clinton said that at one of the conventions, and then he didn't conclude, he kept going, but I'm, I'm gonna conclude. In short, there are many challenges ahead across Latin America. As I've discussed, COVID has accelerated the need for attention on many issues that across the region that were left neglected for many decades. That said, assuming the United States leans in and begins to reassert its leadership across the hemisphere, there's a prospect of counteracting some of the risks that I've discussed. So to accomplish this, we need to overcome our partisan bickering and start working together to build consensus as some of the key issues that I mentioned. And by the way, unless the Congress and the executive branch in our country work together, a lot of what I've just talked about uh, in terms of investment, COVID cooperation, in terms of uh, uh, trade agreements, I want to see a uh, a new energy, renewable energy trade agreement, NAFTA-wise, that I think uh, uh, people like uh, Nelson Cunningham and Andres Rosenthal in Mexico who worked on NAFTA, Richard Kai, and so many, I, I'm going to get in trouble, to build consensus some of the key issues that I mentioned. So economic prosperity, political stability, and the security of the Americans are strategically important to the United States. They shouldn't be used as or viewed as red or blue issues or Democratic or Republican issues. Remember, China and Russia are now more assertive than ever, and they're playing a long-range geopolitical long game. Most of our elected officials are unfortunately just thinking about the next election cycle, especially in Florida. They're already lighting up to run for Congress and Senate and president, and that's a very important state in Latin America policy. Okay, so in the end, it's a long game that truly matters. So what we need to do is to work together to, bet, to build a better future across the Americans. And I've gone exactly one minute over 30 minutes and that's what I was given. So for a politician, I want you to appreciate that. It's very difficult to do. Thank you. Thank you, Governor. Um, well, I've, um, we've had a lot of questions coming in. Um, one, one question um, was, what about uh, the Caribbean? You know, we have Vice President Harris. Her father was from Jamaica. She's got Jamaican roots, so she's got ties to the Caribbean. What opportunities do you see for this administration to do more um, with the Caribbean island nations? Well, I should have mentioned more. Uh, for instance, there's a leadership crisis in Haiti that... Uh, Haiti always seems to bear the brunt of, of, of problems in the Caribbean. Uh, there's massive Chinese investment in, in the Caribbean. You go, well, I'm not saying that's a terrible problem. I'm just saying you, you, you go from the airport into cities and there's stadiums being built, railroads. And, and one disadvantage the Chinese have is they use, they fly in that bring in their own workers and don't, uh, don't hire local people. Look, there's no question. Uh, we've got to resolve uh, the Cuba issue. I think that uh, this is important. Energy issues uh, relating to oil supply, energy supply uh, in, in, in the Caribbean. So, um, you know, I, 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 Richard, this is a, a major focus that we should concentrate more. And we always say Latin America, but we should always say Latin America and the Caribbean. You're right, Jamaica. 
um, wonderful country, the, the vice president. The good thing about the vice president in charge of the migration issue is she knows a lot of, she's very sensitive to these issues. And with the number of diversity appointments this administration has done, uh, there's more sensitivity to uh, issues, not just in the Caribbean, but in India and in Pakistan, in Asian Americans, Hispanic Americans, LGBT, uh, Anglo-Americans, everybody. Richard, you're, you're a Hispanic uh, with, unfortunately, an Anglo name like me. So nobody thinks we're Hispanic, but we are. Thanks, Phil. We have another question. Um, you spoke about populism on, on the left and right. Can you offer a concrete action or way that the Biden administration can deal with Mexico under AMLO, particularly in terms of climate action and renewable energy? How can his administration understand the issue and the obligations under the USMCA? All right. First, I think a lot of personal diplomacy is needed. Biden is very good at this. And look, it's no, it's no secret that AMLO and Trump had a very strong personal relationship, as did Trump and Bolsonaro in Brazil. I don't believe that AMLO and uh, President Biden have had a summit. They've had a couple of uh, tough phone calls. Um, I think some personal involvement, summits are important. You know, I remember the days before presidents were elected on the U.S. side, there would be a summit with Mexico and Canada before uh, as presidents elect. That hasn't happened. Uh, it's a little late now, but my point is that uh, personal engagement. My hope is that, uh, look, if we're abiding by the climate agreements, the Paris Agreement, I hope Mexico reverses its stand on uh, the uh, promotion of exclusively almost fossil fuels, a discouraging investment from from Spain, from the United States, uh, finding ways to work on renewable energy. Uh, president Peña Nieto did that. The previous presidents did that. Uh, I think it's it's going to be a problem with a new NAFTA, the TMEC, uh, and 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 hopefully Canada can play, as I mentioned, a broker role. Well, we got a question from Paul Mason. Um, what would you suggest to to improve? U.S. bilateral relations with Brazil? Well, first, uh, find areas. I've always found uh, personal diplomacy is very important. One, climate change is an area where we can cooperate. I noticed that Brazil has made a major initiative on deforestation on the Amazon. I think that's one issue where we can work together. Uh, Secondly, uh, the COVID issue, uh, huge problems in Brazil. Find ways that uh, some of our vaccines, and not just the Chinese vaccine and Russian vaccines, uh, can work together. Brazil is so important. Um, Brazil is, is, is an economic engine. Uh, it's going to have an election uh, not too far away. But, but it's important that we have also, Richard, some economic... Ties. I think both countries are led by uh, uh, free traders, basically. I'd like to see uh, a free trade agreement uh, of some kind in some product, some technological project, some climate change product between the United States and Brazil. But that's an excellent question, Mr. Mason asked. We've got a question from Ernesto Pinal. 
He asks, uh, what would be the best way to counteract the effects of the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative in the Americas? The long-term effect of this initiative could be significant for the Americas. Could we leverage the USMCA and other free trade agreements in the region to realign the Americas? Well, yeah, I think that energy is a potential uh, opportunity for American investment. If you look at the infrastructure bill that the president, the, the many trillion dollar bill, what it also has is incentives in clean energy technology for investment with uh, foreign countries. And I think Mexico, because of proximity, similarity of culture, has a great opportunity, but the markets have to be part of this. It can't just be government funding, AID funding. I think there are ways that uh, clean energy companies, uh, these SPACs, these efforts to uh, get the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, uh, the IDB more involved in, in promoting technology and clean energy incentives is, is the way to do it. All right. So uh, China's going to continue investing in the region because they have so much capital and so many countries have been dependent on debt financing. I don't think you, you necessarily can compete in those areas as much as the Chinese. But if we neglect and, and, and say, well, you know, we're, we're going to let Chile and Bolivia and other places where China's had massive investments, uh, Venezuela, uh, I know we have sanctions for that country. I think it's, it's going to be a long-range effort for us to shift in this direction. But I think we have to do it for our own sake and, and, and our hemisphere's sake, not just because, you know, we want to be uh, the, uh, the bipolar, bilateral leader in the region. It's in our interest to do that. Thanks. Um, we've got a question from Mark Diamond, who, by the way, was one of my classmates in the Kennedy School. I know, Bill, you taught at the Kennedy School for a few years. So Mark's question, um, you mentioned the need for investment in the region. Is this, prim- is this primary U.S. government investment, private sector investment, or both? And, well, can this investment, yeah, and can this investment be effective if some of the countries where it's most needed have issues with governance, corruption, and transparency? How can the private sector investment be attracted to some of these countries, Central America being a case in point? Well, I think if you look at the Northern Triangle Initiative, the emphasis is private sector investment. In other words, these countries in the Northern Triangle have to have incentives and remove barriers uh, for this private investment to flow. Besides uh, the $4 billion in in assistance that the United States has committed. So I think the answer is all of the above to that excellent question. I think energy, Richard, is the area that has the most potential because of the absolute commitment of the Biden administration towards uh, climate change. And and I urge everybody, I hope, you know, since you're all a very thorough and exceptional think tank, look at this infrastructure uh, initiative that has been proposed to the Congress, which has numerous private sector investment opportunities coupled with financial commitments on uh, what the United States is prepared to do. And AID is not just going to be an agency that gives out money. It's going to be part of an effort, a strategy that involves uh, this combination of private sector and uh, public sector and, and public sector financing. Alex, um, 
Wieselberg has a question. He says, what is your view of the current election taking place in Peru? What could the U.S. do to avoid another Venezuela or Cuba situation um, in that country? Well, you know, Peru is a, is a great country, great resources, great culture, uh, you know, indigenous people. I think there's a lot of commonality with what the Biden administration is doing with indigenous people, uh, with governance. Um, you know, I think uh, there's movement, obviously, uh, the Evo Morales uh, faction, uh, uh, the, the Evo Morales uh, movement is uh, reigniting there. I think, look, we've we got to respect uh, these populist movements. And I think we have to engage of these countries, not just, okay, here's our populism policy. It's, it's country by country. And I think they're great co-investment opportunities in Peru on renewable energy, um, ties between the indigenous peoples. Um, but clearly, uh, Peru, so far, I, I'm involved with a company uh, that has uh, energy investments with Peru. And, you know, Peru has uh, taken uh, in the past uh, some pro-foreign investment policies in areas that, uh, that are important. I hope that continues. Thanks. We got a question from Juan Verde. He, he asks, uh, what can you say about the opportunity to redirect our supply chain away from uh, Asia uh, into Latin America? Well, I know Juan Verde. He, he <laughs> was a great uh, policymaker in the Obama administration. Uh, last time I heard he was living in Spain. So he knows, uh, I think what is very important is Spain's role in the region as a potential partner of the United States and in, 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 in democracy and investments, all the banks in, Latin, in Spain uh, that are investing in Latin America. So um, I, I think that people like Juan Verde, and by the way, Verde, you know, he's green power man. Uh, he knows energy. I think what is needed is this, uh, Richard, the, the specific question was what can be done? Yeah. Well, what, what can be done about what, Richard? I, what, what, what can be done to avoid another Venezuela-Cuba situation if, if, if um, uh, Peru goes towards a more of a leftist populist type of um, governance? You know, the Trump administration, I, I'm going to try not to be terribly partisan, but their policy towards uh, Venezuela, towards Iran, towards Cuba is maximum pressure and no diplomacy. Wait till they fold. That hasn't worked. Look, uh, sometimes sanctions are needed to promote democratization, human rights, you know, deal with problem. But there has to be diplomacy at the end of the road. And, and what I believe this administration is ready to do with a um, and, and I think the president is building his Latin American team. I don't think it's there in entirety. Is, is, is to find ways uh, that you build alliances, like, for instance, with Venezuela. Uh, our policy has been, let's just put every sanction in the books on Venezuela. Uh, it doesn't matter what the European wants to do, uh, uh, Spain. In other words, you, you have to have combined efforts. You can't go it alone. And you've got to talk to other countries in the region. You know, uh, what is terrible right now, the conflict between Colombia, 
and Venezuela. Colombia, a great ally. You know, they're, they're near going into armed conflict on the border. Uh, so there has to be more international engagement. I want to see the UN a little more active. They, they're good on human rights, but I want to see a little more um, um, uh, in, involvement of, of the Organization of American States. You know, they, 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 they're not as engaged as they should be. Uh, those regional organizations are, are important. So comprehensive regional bilateral approaches to problems rather than just the U.S. go it alone, flex our muscle. I think with Cuba, too, I think you're going to see a gradual improvement. It should be. But the Cubans need also to do something, too. Uh, President Obama uh, moved towards a, a recognition of Cuba, and, and Cuba just sat on their hands. They were supposed to do some private sector initiatives, some human rights initiatives. They didn't do it. So th there has to be engagement on both sides. We've got a question from one of your um old family friends, uh, Ricardo Taco Loretta. Uh, oh, he yeah. says, uh, he <laughs> I'll kindly expand on the current border situation. By the way, he was a very good baseball player. Is that Richard Loretta? Yeah, Ricardo Taco Loretta, yeah. <laughs> oh, he's changing his name, go ahead. <laughs> anyway, he wants to see if you could talk about the current border situation, uh, US-Mexico border. He says, it doesn't look good right now. What are your thoughts? Well, no, it, does, it doesn't look good, but um, and, and this is very divisive in American politics. He knows that. I think we got to do several things. One, you got to involve the border governors more on Mexico and the U.S. side. They've kind of been, you know, a little bit silent. I want to see more activism on the part of border governors, you know, in your state, in my state, in, in uh, Arizona, uh, in, in, in Texas, you know, a little more. So that's one. Two, uh, use the Richard, the mechanisms that uh, we had on NAFTA, uh, the, the Border Environmental Board, uh, the bank, uh, use them more. I think they need a little re revitalization. Um, I do believe that uh, the president is proceeding, uh, do an initiative on the dreamers. You can't have a comprehensive immigration. You approach it as comprehensive, but you got to be realistic. Uh, you know, the votes on immigration are very divisive. Yeah, the House of Representatives would uh, would be, I think, on immigration issues, generous. The Senate, there's a very small uh, majority, actually a majority of one. Uh, so you, you have to deal with asylum. You have to deal with uh, the issue of, I mentioned the dreamers. But also, Richard, you know, I, I, I used to say the best immigration bill that I saw was by George W. Bush, where he pushed for uh, dealing uh, on, a, on a basis of uh, uh, several years. Uh, you spoke English, no crimes, uh, American values. You, you can have a path to citizenship. And there's 11 million people in our country, maybe 12 million, many in your state. That, that deserve a recognition that they're, they're here as very active and positive citizens. But uh, that has to be more long range. But uh, I think enact this Northern Tribal Initiative, that's good. And I mentioned another thing that needs to happen. Process these kids before they get to the border. Find ways that we cooperate with the Central Americans so these kids, you know, can can deal with the violence and 
and corruption and and you know the killings that their families endure but but don't wait till they get to the border but it's got to be cooperative with the nations in the region not just us mexico uh, and and i think mexico's been helping central american countries but they're going to need that incentive they could need those funds passed by the congress Four billion dollars uh uh, it, it's a worthy investment. We've got a related question from Mark um, Gunther. Um, he asks, uh, will the vice president be able to use the good offices of the OAS to improve conditions in Central America such that fewer people will need to migrate to the United States? You know, uh, one, uh, the good thing about the vice president, she's been a senator from California. She knows border issues. She knows uh, African-American uh, Indo, the, the fact that she is a woman, I think, is very important. Women are the victims of uh, a lot of the uh, economic and, and many other problems in the region. I think that is very important. I'd like to see a revitalization of the organization of American states. The OAS could could be more active, you know, and and, and I think there's too much worry of. Uh, elections and re-elections of secretary generals. Uh, I think Luis Almagro has done a good job, but it's the member states that need to say, you know, we're we're ready to participate as a region instead of the group of Lima, uh, instead of the the uh, populist group. And, you know, they seem to be fighting in narrow 10 to 11 votes. Uh, so I think member states have to step up too. It can't just be the vice president mandating it, uh, but but I think she's going to have a key role in these migration issues. She is with Mexico, but I think immigration is not just a problem, Richard. It's it's uh, in, on our border. It's with Muslim states. It's it's a whole series of many other issues. Asylum states. You know, we're a nation of immigrants. Uh, um, you know, some of the hatred. Uh, against Asian Americans, unacceptable. Uh, it's just something that, it's not just institution resolving and building, but, you know, a change of attitude. And this is where I think the president is with his tone, with his unifying efforts, with his, you know, not be part of every news cycle, uh, agitating is is a good step in the right direction. Thanks. Uh, we got Peter Meissen, who, by the way, runs a great um energy-focused think tank out here on the West Coast. Um, He writes, um, President Biden proposed more electric grid interconnections in the U.S. to tap large renewable um, resources. As energy sector, you propose the same sustainable development initiative for the Central American nations. How can these interconnections rebuild trade and trust more quickly? Well, first, uh, he's absolutely right. We have to rebuild our own grid, Richard. And in the, in, in the United States, in the infrastructure bill, you know, we have three grids. And you saw the problem that happened in Texas uh, with a failure to uh, connect the three grids, lack of uh, uh, regulation, not winterizing the grid, not modernizing the Texas grid. And look what happened. Uh, it was a disaster. So the infrastructure bill of the president uh, has incentives to connect the grids, to modernize the grid. And we should, I think, with Latin America, you were you were with me when we had a summit of Latin American countries on energy and the grid. And, and the most strongest recommendations was an interconnection, a modernization of our grids. 
The only way that's going to happen is with the private sector, with energy companies. I know there are a lot of energy companies maybe listening in. Uh, I hope they haven't turned off. Uh, is, is, you know, this cooperation, this economic integration that is so important. And energy is, I think, the main vehicle now, along with the, with the COVID. But, but I'd like to see, a re, I, I hope that we can look at a, a trade agreement, uh, a, a NAFTA of all Latin American states and the United States and Canada, on renewable energy, on clean energy technology, on modernizing and connecting our grids. On a related uh, question, this is something you and I were talking about before the, the webinar. Um, you know, when you were secretary, you, you did a lot to try to promote greater engagement with Latin America. To currently in Latin America, there are seven nuclear power plants. Um, you've got Laguna Verde in Mexico, and then you've got plants in uh, Brazil and Argentina. Um, in recent years, you've got um, Rus Adam, a, a Russian parastatal company that's um, providing technical assistance and also investing in um, nuclear energy um, throughout the region uh, in those countries, as well as they're looking at Chile, for example. Um, what opportunities do you see as the former energy secretary, as someone who cares about energy issues, to expand um, U.S. cooperation in the area of nuclear? Um, I see potential for nuclear and hydrogen production um, and that could go hand in hand. So what are your, some of your thoughts? Well, uh, you know, as a former bureaucrat, I would say that uh, it's important for the Department of Energy to uh, build some uh, nuclear cooperation agreements in Latin America. Almost exclusively, they've been in Russia, which, by the way, uh, many were terminated that I started on uranium and, you know, nuclear technology with Russia. Um, um, that, that we look at, because Russia's penetrating there. And, and there's no reason why we can't be part of that. Uh, you know, nuclear is in Mexico, as you know, in Brazil, you, you mentioned the country. So that's one. But two, um, that we find ways, uh, Richard, on, uh, on nuclear technology that look, uh, you know, I know nuclear, especially in your state, is, is in some trouble, but they don't emit greenhouse emissions. So, um, and, and sometimes dealing with nuclear company CEOs is very frustrating because they, you know, they're very snobby, but they, they need to get part, they need to get with a program. So um, I would also, besides the Department of Energy, there are many other uh, agencies that are participating now in, in, uh, in energy technology and transition. Um, I would also uh, find ways for uh, enhanced ties between the Nuclear Regulatory Commission uh, and, and, and ways that we can also expand into nuclear cooperation in the region. Um, I don't see why not. Thanks. We've, got a, we've got an anonymous uh, question regarding Venezuela and, and is it time to rethink sanctions? And also, while we're at it, Venezuela, we'd love to hear um, um, sort of your thoughts on how things are going with the Cisco 6. I know you've been working heavily on that issue. I, I started on this last year. My, my uh, I think uh, Nelson mentioned, my foundation works on American hostages and hostages in general. We've had generally good success in, in, uh, in Iraq and North Korea 
in, in the Middle East, uh, in Latin America, and Mexico, a Marine, uh, I remember in San Diego, near you there, about three years ago that we, uh, we negotiated with Mexico. The Sitco 6, um, again, I think the past policy of the Trump administration of maximum pressure, maximum pressure uh, sanctions is not work. It hasn't worked. So we have to have some creative diplomacy. Um, on the Sitco 6, it's not going too well. Uh, you know, we managed to get two out of the six uh, into house arrest, but then put them back in house arrest. There's currently, you know, I'm participating in those negotiations, and and I've had help from uh, the State Department and the Trump and in the uh, Biden administration. But, you know, there's always, Richard, the other side wants something in return, and that's what's been elusive. But with Venezuela, um, I think we need to, one, uh, in, there's opposition elements in Venezuela that, that need uh, to come together themselves and be strengthened. Secondly, we got to work with the European Union. we got to work with the Norwegians uh, on, on pushing for free and fair elections. Um, and, and we can't underestimate uh, the fact that in the past on these political prisoners, uh, the president of Venezuela and the Venezuela was ready to turn over prisoners. In fact, they did, a man named Josh Holt and others. And, and we didn't reciprocate, the United States. So you need, a, you need a new approach. This is a great country, a valuable country with a lot of energy, with great human resources. Uh, it was one of the wealthiest, number one producer of oil uh, in the world for a while. So we got to re-engage. We got to find ways to, to deal with uh, the democratization of the country. And, and not just have maximum pressure, sanctions, you know, bring them down to their knees. There's got to be diplomacy. And this is where President Biden, I think, is, is, has been and is going to be very good. Well, thank you, Bill. Well, it's been a real pleasure um, having you uh, join the Institute in this conversation about our hemisphere. Uh, thank you so much for your participation. I want to thank Nelson for, um, for your introduction and for being part of our board and all that you do for the Institute. I want to thank Malin Burnham and the Burnham Institute for their support of this series, also UCTV, and all of you uh, that spent time with us today. So thank you all, and uh, we'll see you at our next webinar. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.